My name's Ty. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and my wife and I have the, just the privilege and opportunity, just a journey with a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of couples um, who are just going through some struggles in the care and counseling ministry here at Sojourn, and uh, it's just a, a blessing to be able to serve. So uh, if you're here this morning, uh, it's your first time, and you don't like what you hear, you can always come back next week, and I won't be preaching. So uh, it'll be good for you there, but if you have been here for a while, you'll know that we've been working through the book of James. And um, for me, James is refreshing. I, I like his voice. He's a clear communicator. He's kind of a, an upfront kind of a guy. You always know clearly what he's thinking. And uh, he just knows what to say and uh, a really good way to communicate that. And the passage today that we're going to look at is really no different. The passage that we're going to talk about today gives an option between two kinds of wisdom. You have worldly wisdom, and you have godly wisdom. And so you just so you know, I'm not trying to oversimplify it. James makes it really simple for us this morning. James commands in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. And so we want a godly wisdom that results in doing this morning. The difficult thing is right now, you're all looking at me like, yeah, I'm going to choose godly wisdom, right? Like the choice isn't that hard. We wake up every single morning wanting to choose godly wisdom, right? And we're going to do that. Like, we're confident in the godly wisdom that we're going to choose. But what happens once your head hits that pillow at night? Those scripts keep on replaying in your head. Either that day or a previous week, previous month of that worldly wisdom. You know, that foolishness that you have chosen and that regret and that shame and that guilt. And so we find ourselves wanting godly wisdom but acting every single day according to this worldly wisdom that James talks about. So my, my big thing this morning is we must choose wisely. We must choose wisely. And so I'm thinking about examples of choosing wisely, and I can think of no greater example than Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I was 10 when that came out. It made my childhood. I loved those movies. I don't know if I watched that movie when I was 10, but eventually I ended up watching it. And the scene that I'm referring to, you should, you should know pretty well. It's, it's the last scene within the movie. And uh, remember, Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, his dad, I'm not even going to try imitation, the Sean Connery. I can't, I'm so bad at imitations, I can't even do one of Sean Connery. It's really, really sad. But remember, his dad gets shot by Donovan, the nemesis, and he's hanging out there. He's going to die. And Indiana knows he needs to go ahead and find the Holy Grail, right? The cup, the chalice, and find the, the holy water, the, the eternal water, the fountain of youth, so that he can save his dad. And so he gets out his handbook. Remember that handbook that he has? Gives him all the instructions, and he heads into a cave. It's like a tunnel, cave type of a thing. And he's walking through there, and he reads his book. He's like, the penitent man will pass. The penitent man will pass. The penitent man will pass. And he's looking around and he sees like 
the bones just laid across the entire tunnel of all the people that have died previously. And so he's, he's getting kind of nervous. And then all of a sudden he sees that, remember that whoosh of air that moves the cobwebs? And all of a sudden what happens? He hits his knees, right? And then I'm not going to do the roll that he did in that movie. Not even going to attempt it. I'll hurt myself and fall off the stage. But he, like, he rolls, and what's the penitent man? The humble man, right? So he lowers himself, and he survives, and he gets on to the next task. Um, there's a couple other ones. My other favorite one, uh, remember the leap of faith that he must do? You know, he's running, trying to escape something, and then all of a sudden, you know, he gets to the, the edge of abyss right here, and there's this big chasm between where he is and where he needs to go. And he gets out his handy book and talks about, like, the leap of faith. So you just see him put it in his pocket and kind of close his eyes. He just kind of gets this leg out here and closes his eyes. And he takes a step down, and he, he lands, right? Thanks to Steven Spielberg, he, he, he goes ahead and lands on, like, an invisible bridge, and he's safe, and then he gets out some gravel from his pocket and throws it across the bridge. And so he passes that test as well. The third test is really a test of wisdom. So he must prove himself here. And he meets a guy called the Grail Knight. He's been alive for like 600 years. So it's a completely realistic movie if you haven't seen it. And, and, and the, the Grail Knight says this. He says, you must choose, but choose wisely. Whereas the true Grail will bring you life, the false grail will take it from you. And what happens at this point is Indy looks to his right, and there Donovan is, the nemesis. He comes crashing in with a gun at Indy's head, and uh, he gets the first chance, the bad guy, in choosing the cup. And so this is the scene you'll remember well, that first one. See, there's Donovan, and there's the lady back there. There's the grail knight, and of course, Indiana Jones. And so the, the lady picks out this cup for him. It's like the most beautiful, most ornate cup in the entire room. And Donovan, he says, it's more beautiful than I ever imagined. He thought he was choosing wisely. So remember that scene? He takes the cup. He has this confidence. He dips it into the water. He takes that drink. And then you see this like, like devilish smirk kind of come across like, I won. I chose wisely. And then all of a sudden you see this like look of terror, like something's going wrong. It's like after White Castle for some of you, I don't eat there. Um, and, and then the cup drops, right, on the floor. And then I'm not, I don't just, if you have kids in here, I don't have a picture of the next scene if you remember the movie. But like he quickly fades from being like a 50-year-old man to just, just aging and just getting really old into skeletons and bold, uh, bones and ashes and he flies against the wall and he dies, and that lady there is, is freaking out. So Indy at that point, he's like, all right, I must choose wisely. Uh, oh, I missed that part. But before this, this is the classic line from the movie right there. I found a meme for it. <laughs> Life is good when you can search the internet. Uh, he chose poorly. Remember that statement? So Indy then takes a look around the room to try to find what he was looking for. And he finally found the cup of the carpenter. And that cup of the carpenter looked nothing like that previous chalice. You see, it's kind of old, uh, dingy, uh, it's meek, does not have much countenance about it. And he confidently grabbed that cup, but when it came to the moment to dip that cup in the water to drink it, this was the look on his face. And so he quickly just drank it, water's gushing down his face. And then he 
his eyes make a beeline to the grail knight. And the grail knight goes, you have chosen wisely. So, corny sermon transition. That's what we want to do this morning. You know, we want to choose wisely and find a way so that at the end of the night, uh, we can look back and have gratitude for what God has given us and for what God has given others, and that we would pray to have the type of godly wisdom that is marked with humility, gentleness, meekness, and peace. Because living such a life, according to James, is true wisdom. So if you're able to this morning, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We've got some fancy new Bibles and those fancy new chairs in front of you. Feel free to grab one. Open up to James 3, verse 13 through 18. Who among you is wise in understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, Don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, do something in our hearts and minds today and provide us an antidote to the poison effects of envy in our hearts, our minds, and our souls. Lord, help us to come to you. Lord, and help us to seek godly wisdom and shirk the worldly wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Who among you is wise in understanding? This awkward pause is on purpose. I'm really asking you that question this morning. Who among you is wise in understanding? Put yourselves in that audience for a second that James is talking about. I love that question. It's like like one of those would-you-rather questions that we've been asking our kids around the table at supper time, and they're amazing. It's like whatever your answer, like it's, it's not going to be good for you. Our favorite one this week was this. Would you rather suffer from spontaneous shouting or unpredictable fainting spells? There's just no good way to answer James's question, right? If you answer yes to James' question, you know you're going to get sucker punched, right? Yeah, I'm that guy. 
and wise and understanding. You're just setting yourself up. But if you answer no, it's not too good for you either, is it? Okay, I'm a stupid fool. Yes, James, just heap it on me anyway. The bottom line is that James asks a rhetorical question. You know, he asks the question in order to prove a point because he knows that everyone's going to answer yes. We all think that we are wise and understanding. He goes on to write this. He says, by his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. I like that word gentleness. We don't think about that as an outflow of wisdom too often, do we? I don't know about you, if you're, if you're a parent or if you work with kids. Um, I'll just make the assumption like your, your kids are perfect angels that just like get along with each other and heap like gentleness and kindness and grace and love on each other. I feel bad because a couple of my kids are here today, but our house is not exactly like that, okay? We don't have much gentleness that flows from wisdom in our house. And so this is what happens every single day, all right? Kid A does something to kid B, right? A bad thing, a mean thing, a not-so-nice thing. And so you go to kid A who did the mean thing, and you're like, Hey, kid A, don't you love your sister? And you're like, uh, no. Do you love your sister? Yes, I love my sister. And then what do you say next? Well, prove it. Show your love to your sister. This is what James is talking about. If you're wise, prove it. Make your life resemble that. Here's the thing about wisdom. Wisdom is not the accumulation of stuff you know. It's not your IQ. It's not the books you've read. It's not the number of degrees hanging on your wall. It's not your street smarts either. And insert necessary social network commentary here. It's not the number of followers you got on Instagram, okay? The number of people who viewed your Insta stories this week. It's not your wisdom. Wisdom requires an action, okay? Wisdom requires a doing. Wisdom without doing is just knowledge. So what does wisdom look like? What is it marked by? And I love this. It's just, it's just something new for me. Wisdom looks like doing stuff for others with gentleness, according to James. Don't you love that? Wisdom is doing stuff for others with gentleness. I know as a parent, that's, that's hard. That's hard, the gentleness part. I'm really good at being harsh with my kids. You know, as a parent, you take... You're like disciplining your kids, and then you go that one step further into like the harshness, just trying to grind it down. That was so convicting last week when we took the tongue with James 3 for me. I want to have wisdom that's marked with gentleness. So that's one definition. Here's a couple other definitions of wisdom that I have grown to love through this study. 
should flash up there in a second. Maybe not. There we go. Wisdom's the ability to skillfully apply knowledge to life. That's kind of like the classic definition of wisdom. Uh, this is my favorite. Wisdom is the act of thinking something stupid to say and not saying it. For me, I would insert sarcastic into stupid, and it would really apply to me. Wisdom is not only knowing what to do, but doing it. When I was, uh, when I was 19, um, I took one of those, well, 18 to 19, after high school, I took one of those gap years. Anybody know what a gap year is? It's like a new term. Gap year is that year between high school and college. Back in the 90s, it was called everybody around you holds their breath and grits your teeth that you're going to make a wise decision after this year about what you're going to do with your life, okay? So that's what I did after high school. And what resulted was that I, I drove, uh, I worked for a company called American Overhead Door in Wisconsin, if you can tell from my accent. And I delivered garage doors throughout the state of Wisconsin, like northern Wisconsin. And uh, mostly to ex-cons um, in small remote parts of the state. And if, you're, if you install a garage, I'm not assuming that you're an ex-con, by the way. That was just the, the circumstance up in Wisconsin. But I drove truck for that year, and as I drove truck around the state, I just, I just thought about what I was going to do for the rest of my life. You know, those big decisions that you're making at that point. At the end of the year, I ended up saving up some money, and I decided to go to college. Um, and one of the, the last nights before leaving for college, I, I took my Bible out to a park, and um, I just sat there for a while, and I read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes remains one of my favorite books to this day. And after considering that and some of the wisdom literature, I began to, to ask God for wisdom. Lord, give me the wisdom that Solomon had. Lord, bless me with wisdom. But when I look back on it, I don't think I was praying for godly wisdom. I, I was really praying for me wisdom. Not wisdom that was full of gentleness, not wisdom that would benefit others. I was praying for knowledge for the benefit of me. Why, why is that? I don't know if there's some people built like me. There surely must be at least a handful. But I love accumulating knowledge. Like, I love reading books. I kind of love, like, collecting and hoarding information. You know, the internet is just a really bad downfall for me. It's like an endless supply of information and data. I really like talking to people. Not because I'm, I really like people, but I really like seeing what kind of information I can kind of pull from them. Like, he's really a jerk. I can be, okay? I'll admit that. Here's the reality. I tend to feel more comfortable behind the pages of a book than in front of the gaze of another person. I don't feel comfortable around folks as much as people think I do. It's just kind of how I'm built. So when I graduated from college, everybody asked that famous question. When you graduate high school, you graduate from college, like, what are you going to do with your life? What's next? And I really, I, I had an idea, but not much of an idea. And this is how I responded. I said, I'd really like to be a pastor if I didn't have to deal with people. It's true. God certainly has a funny way of writing our stories, doesn't he? It's cliche, 
but it's true. So instead of teaching at a college, having a bunch of degrees on my wall, having a bunch of books authored by me, God's been gracious to allow me the blessing to serve as a pastor at Sojourn for almost the last nine years. So what happened? What changed inside my heart? The blessing is that God relentlessly put folks on my path that demonstrated the kind of wisdom that James describes in our passage today. Because of those people in my life, God cultivated in my heart a deep love for his people and his church. And I pray that I display a fraction of the wisdom, kindness, and gentleness that others have shown me. So I just want to ask you this morning, how would you describe your wisdom and understanding? How would you describe your wisdom and understanding? Would gentleness be one of the words that you use to describe your wisdom? Or are you sharp with your wisdom and understanding? Do you use it to be clever, sarcastic, sardonic, to pull each other down, to say cutting words? In God's eyes, one is only wise if she is gentle, meek, full of peace and dealing with others. As we've been looking through this series on James, do you remember the sermon series title? It's Faith That Works. You got one. It's faith that works, right? It requires a doing. True wisdom mirrors true faith. Just as faith requires work, so does wisdom. Wisdom has much more to do with the way we act rather than the way we think. Humility, gentleness, meekness, and peace must accompany wisdom or there is no wisdom. So for the remainder of the morning, after kind of defining wisdom and what James was getting at, we're going to talk about the two different wisdoms in the world. We've got worldly wisdom and we've got godly wisdom. So I, I was late with my outline this morning, but if you're an outline junkie, um, here we go. The first one is this, worldly wisdom comes from hell. Worldly wisdom comes from hell. James 3.15 says this, such wisdom does not come down from earth or from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I admit that's a tough one to start with. You know, we don't talk much about things being demonic um, here at Sojourn. But it's biblical. Wisdom and understanding that is accompanied with bitter envy and selfish ambition is demonic. It is not from God. How does James arrive to such a conclusion? He knows the scriptures and he knows his own heart. We see just Genesis 3, right? Right off the bat. You've got Adam and Eve and what do they do? They choose the wisdom of Satan over the wisdom of God. There's something alluring to the wisdom from Satan that they choose to follow because it seemed good and wise in their heart to abandon God's wisdom and seek their own. What we must realize is that there's something that exists within our own souls that craves our own glory, our own delights, and our own desires above what is good for those around us and contrary to the nature of our Creator. 
This is the earthly, unspiritual, demonic character that we have inherited from the very beginning of human civilization. How do we know that? We look at 1 Corinthians. It says, but the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. For me, the, the struggle with worldly wisdom is it, is it seems to work. It's effective, especially at work. Especially at work. For me, I, I know that, like, I know I can be a jerk at work sometimes. I, I can kind of push people around, manipulate, just force my way, get my way. But I'm a jerk but it's effective. It's really effective. (laughs) My daughter said I shouldn't say that. (laughs) The wisdom that James rebukes is wisdom that's centered on me. That's centered on our own heart, our own life, our own desires, and does not have regard for the lives lived of those around us. The good news for us this morning is that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You've been given new desires by the Holy Spirit that helps your wants to be different than what your soul craves. You'll be tempted to follow the wisdom of this world, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you now have the ability and power to shirk off the foolishness of this world and fight to live a life that is pleasing to God. So there's our, our start with wisdom comes from hell. Worldly wisdom comes from hell. The second one is worldly wisdom is centered on self. And this is where I want to just stick around a little bit. This idea is repeated twice in these few verses. It says worldly wisdom is marked by bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. Envy is not a word that really pops up much, does it? Like I've, I've never met with somebody and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm just... I'm really envious all the time of people around me. Like, please, I'm envious of you. All the, all the things you say and all the knowledge that you have. I'm joking there. Please forgive me. We don't talk about envy much. I think a reason for that is, is we get confused between the words envy and jealousy. Envy and jealousy are are used interchangeably in this culture today. But if we look at the definitions classically, they mean something different. And the distinction is helpful. Classically defined, jealousy is the fear of losing something. Jealousy is the fear of losing something. Jealousy occurs when something we already possess, usually a special relationship, is threatened by a third person. Jealousy is an emotional response to the threat of losing something, and usually someone. So we usually hear about the jealous boyfriend, right? What does the jealous boyfriend do? He is worried that he is going to lose the affections of his girlfriend. He is fearful that he is going to lose her love, her attention. And so what does he do? He checks the text messages. He checks the phone calls. He's always 
wondering where she is. He is fearful of losing his girlfriend, and so he's jealous of her. The best example I could come up with was our new puppy, Dakota. And I'd throw a picture up, but you'd be envious, but not jealous. Jealousy is what happens in our house every single day with our kids because that dog has created a new level of conflict in the Thorn household because child A is jealous of child B for the time they get to spend with the dog. Child A is concerned that they will lose the affections of the dog and that that dog would favor child B. That's jealousy. Is when we are fearful of losing something else. When we say or think that we're jealous of something or someone, like I'm so jealous of Elliot for his nice music voice. What we typically mean is that we are feeling the emotion of envy. I'm envious of the gifts that God has given Elliot. What's new that I learned is envy is an emotion. It's something we feel. Some describe this, some describe envy as like a tightness of the chest. And the only reason I can think about that is because all of our wants, all of our desires are just trying to leap out of our chest and try to, try to grab hold on something. And so our chest is tight because we're trying to hold all that in. Shakespeare described envy as the green sickness. And likened those plagued with the emotion of envy as green-eyed monsters. Like there's a part of envy that makes us sick. Think about the color of sickness. It's green. How would you define envy this morning? And what, is, what does envy look like in your life? How do you know that you're feeling envious of something or someone? And what kind of effect does envy have on your soul, on your heart, on your thoughts, your relationships with the people that surround you? Here's a couple definitions that I was drawn to. Um, while I was looking at this, envy is being preoccupied with a comparison, and it makes you miserable. Envy is the emotion or feeling that we experience when someone, off, someone is better off than we are. And I really like this one. Envy is the hatred of someone else's borrowed glory. Envy is listed as one of the seven deadly sins. And I love this as well. One author was talking about the seven deadly sins, you know, gluttony, things of that nature. And he says, out of all of them, only envy is no fun at all. It's so true. Envy gives birth to a whole host of other sins and unpleasantries in our life. The writer of Proverbs said, jealousy is rottenness to the bones. It's my other favorite, last one. Envy is the poison that we drink trying to inflict pain on somebody else. Envy is the poison we drink trying to inflict pain on somebody else. What's interesting as well is that about envy is that we typically are only envious with other people for which we share a similarity with. In other words, like, I'm not envious of my nine-year-old daughter, nor would I be envious of a 90-year-old man. Who I'm envious of is my neighbor. Who I'm envious of is, is my coworker. That's about my same age. 
who I'm envious of, of are my family members, who I'm envious of are just people that in our, are around me. And so the danger for us this morning, as we share a bunch of similarities, is that there is real danger of envy being among us. Our hearts are most prone to be envious of the community of folks around us. And it can destroy us. But not only our own souls, our communities. So we kind of define envy, and now we need to figure out what envy does. Envy typically does one of two things. Envy pulls others down, or it pulls us up. So envy pulls others down, or it pulls us up. We'll start with the pulling down. Classic example of the Bible of envy pulling others down is Cain and Abel, right? Right there in Genesis. Cain is envious of his brother Abel because God favored his sacrifice for some unknown reason over his own. And so did, how, did, how did Cain pull Abel down? He killed him, right? You can't, you can't pull someone else down worse than what Cain did to Abel. Another example was this, uh, of pulling people down, is this social experiment done in Ethiopia. And I'm not going to relay it, I'll just kind of bring it close to home. It'd be like me, like, especially after those conflict days that we happen, at, that we have at our house often, it'd be like me going to my kids, hey kids, I'm going to give you each $50. Yeah, thanks dad, you're the best. I know. $50. And we're going to go to Target. And you can spend that $50. But I have another deal for you. If you want, you can give me $5. And I will only give your brother or sister $30. What? Yeah, you can pay $5 of your own money at a cost to yourself to inflict pain and misery on your brother and sister. This study was done in Ethiopia, and about 10% of the people in that experiment paid money to inflict pain on another person by having them have less money. The same study was done in the UK, and about 50% of the people took that option. I would hate to see what those numbers are in America. So what we do with envy is that we pull other people down. Remember, envy is the poison we drink wanting to inflict pain on somebody else. Envy always costs us something. So there's some obvious ways in which we pull others down, but I know in my heart that I have much more clever ways to pull other people down than killing them or paying money to take some of their own. Envy affects my relationship. One thing I do I, is that if I'm envious of someone, I'll ration my love to them. I'll limit my love and attention to them. I, I just won't pay much regard for them. Another way that I pull other people down with my envy is that if I suspect someone is a, in a better socioeconomic status than me, i.e. makes more money than me, I'll start thinking things like this. Well, they must have a more demanding job. So they have to work more hours. If they work more hours, then they spend more time away from home. If they spend more time away at home, then they don't spend as much time with their kids and they don't spend as much time with their wife. So 
he makes more money, but I'm a better dad and father and husband. So I pull them down in my heart and my soul and my mind, and it makes me feel better, and it bridges that gap between what I want and what they have. Envy is poison, and it breeds a slow and steady decay of our own souls and relationships. And so I want to ask you this morning, what does envy look like for you? How do you pull people down with your envy? Who are you envious of in your life? The big question is why? Envy is one of the deadliest sins because it's a root sin. And if any of you are in kind of construction or even engineering, you know that there's something called a root cause analysis, which means that when something goes wrong, you want to dig deeper and always ask the why and the why and the why until you get to the core of the problem. And so I want to ask you this this morning. What is the want behind the envy? What is the want behind your envy? What do you do with it? And how does it affect your relationships? So we talked about how envy pulls others down in order to make us feel better. Another thing that it does is that envy pulls us up. It pulls us up. I think that's what James talks about when he mentions us having selfish ambition in our hearts. The words James used in the original language are typically applied to politicians, which is interesting because politicians were just as despised 2,000 years ago than they probably are today. They had selfish ambition. So what's that relationship? How does envy result in selfish ambition? Well, what, envy, what selfish ambition does is it really it bridges that gap between what we believe exists between us and those we're envious of. And it creates foreign desires inside of our heart that really distract us from what God has called us to. So an example of this as far as pulling ourselves up is that when we enviously respond to other people having more money and better stuff than us, We spend our time and energy and focus hustling to make more money and more money to get more stuff and more stuff. All while we remain undistracted or we may remain distracted, sorry, undistracted by the plight of the poor, marginalized and needy folks that exist all around us. So because we're working so hard to get what someone else has, which we wouldn't want it until they had it then we lose focus on what really matters in life. So with all this, just a couple questions for application. How does envy take root in your life? How does it manifest itself? Are your social media posts or conversations with others an attempt to pull you up? How about your conversations with other people? Do you tend to talk more about yourself in conversations? Or are you asking other people what's going on in their lives? Sorry for more social media hits. But it's summer. It's vacation season, right? Are you putting those pictures up on your social media account of your vacation? For you? Or for others? How are you pulling yourself up? One of the dangers of envy 
is that it's kind of like an autoimmune disease. What an autoimmune disease does is it attacks all the good stuff in your body, kind of wears it down, breaks it down. But it not only affects our own hearts, but it's, it's contagious to other people. It spreads. And so when we engage in activities and behaviors that pull ourselves up, other people become envious of that. And the cycle just continues and continues until what James says is it leads to all kinds of destruction. So what are we to do this morning? What can we do with our envy? I I think it's clear we all have an envy problem. I've got three things. First thing is we need to pursue godly wisdom. We need to pursue godly wisdom. And it's a simple solution because it comes from James. I'm not simplifying a complex problem with a simple answer. It's biblical. Wisdom comes from above, according to James 3.16. And James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Godly wisdom does not come from a book. It doesn't come from a seminary degree. It comes from heaven, and we can only get it by asking for it. The second point is this, is that we need to cultivate gratitude in our lives. We need to cultivate gratitude in our lives. And this is our own life first. Gratitude is the enemy of envy. Gratitude is the enemy of envy. Simply put, gratitude is being thankful. Gratitude is being thankful. It's a state of appreciation and a display of kindness towards others. A simple exercise to cultivate gratitude. I love this. In order to cultivate gratitude, remember when you wanted what you currently have. Remember when you wanted what you currently have. Just this meditation cultivates gratitude. That new puppy, that's all cute. Also poops and pees on our floor. And she bites. She's annoying. And she takes a lot of work. What would it look like for me to remember five weeks ago when we didn't have that puppy, how much I wanted that puppy? How much fun that would bring to our lives? How much joy? Wow, God gave me that. I'm thankful. It's not going to prevent pooping and peeing on the floor, but it's going to help my envious heart. So think about when you wanted what you currently have. The focus of godly wisdom is not ourselves. It's not our desires, our wants, or our comparisons. Godly wisdom is centered on God. We see that from James 3.17. The wisdom from above is pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. What does godly wisdom produce in us? We just sang about that. How nice was that to sing about peace before? We long for peace. Peace in our own hearts. Peace in this this world. 
and godly wisdom results in peace and righteousness. James 3.18 says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. And James 4.5-6 says, Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says, The Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely. Listen to this. But He gives greater grace. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The grace that God gives us through Christ, it works as an anti-venom to go ahead and cure the poison of envy's bite. God blesses the humble with grace, which is getting what we don't deserve, so that we can in turn lavish that on others. And so that we can truly say that it is well with my soul. Lastly and finally, I talked about for point number two, we need to cultivate gratitude in our own lives. I think one of the best cures for envy is to cultivate a gratitude for what other people have as well. To cultivate gratitude in the lives of others. It's hard. I'm talking to you, and I don't want to do that. Hey, God, thank you for that guy that got that new truck. That's nice that you blessed him with that. I would like a new truck too. But it's nice of you, God. But when we take what we want and desire from other people, and we thank God for giving them that blessing, it does something in our hearts. It does something in our minds. And we can respond with thankfulness. And the good news is that it gives us peace. What would it look like to have peace at the end of a day? Just be rewarded with the fruit of godly wisdom. We're all guilty of wanting more than what we already have been given through Christ's death. But the good news for this morning is that God's grace is enough. So if you're in Christ this morning, the encouragement is to meditate on that. The encouragement is to cultivate gratitude in your heart and mind and pray to God for wisdom to choose His ways over your own. And if you're not in Christ, I want to implore you that wanting, that desire, that craving... can be healed through God's grace. Our hearts always want more, but He can be enough. We sang before, why are you downcast, O my soul? I think something to walk away with is just to change those words and say, are you, why are you envious, O my soul? And respond, I am satisfied in you. Go away preaching the gospel to ourselves and remember what work Christ has done on our behalf. And that's what we do each week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We do this as a family. And we, re- we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, 
He took a loaf of bread similar to this and he broke it. Giving thanks, he said, this is my body that was broken for you. Every time you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup. So this is the cup of the new covenant. And every time you drink this, do this in remembrance of me, proclaiming my death until I return. And so we become thankful this morning that Christ did what we cannot do. We could easily be envious of his perfect life, but we are not envious of his death and the bearing of his sins. What's beautiful is that God was jealous for us because our desires and our wants were going in a different direction than what he wanted. And so he rescued us. And because of his jealous love, Jesus can cleanse our envious hearts. As you come before and take the Lord's Supper, um, you can go ahead and take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or juice. We also have a gluten-free station up front. Uh, The wine is always marked with twine. If you're not a believer, if you're not in Christ, I just want you to encourage you to turn those wants and desires towards Christ, that he may satisfy them and that you may take the Lord's Supper as a member of our family next week. Let's pray.